furniture, appliances, mattress. Fam.news. The story behind the Sealy Wars. It was a battle for the brand. We have an expert on the subject matter today. Hey, and by the way, how did the Seedly Wars actually create mattress firm? The Dos Marcos show begins right now, and Bob Hellier is back. Englanders stole the entire show. It smokes all the other national brands because you're getting more of the high-grade materials. Perfectly designed where it just feels great. Katie and Greg Law, Sweet Dreams Mattress and Furniture. We get the best reactions from our customers on the Englander products. They tend to lay down on the bed and it's like a wow factor. And then they're either done with the whole shopping process or they try a few more and none of them feel as good as that original one that they laid down on. Learn more and get started today at englander.com. Welcome to the Dos Marco Show with Mark Kinsley and Mark Quinn. The galaxy's greatest mattress podcast has liftoff in... Hello, boys. All right, how... It's time to get into it. Uh, you guys, you, you got a student here. So I've heard about the Sealy Wars. I've heard bits and pieces about how it potentially shaped the industry we know today. But that's about it. But this was a big deal, and it was a very tumultuous time in the mattress category. You know, Mark, I'm, I'm glad we're doing this episode, by the way, to frame it up, because there's a lot of people listening to this show that have never heard any of these stories. They don't know the name Arnie Williger. They don't know how Sealy evolved into what it is today. So, Bob, we're really glad to have you on the show to, like, uh, take everyone through it. So thanks for coming back. And tell us a little bit about, like, how did the Sealy Wars even start? Well, it basically started um, with Ernie Williger, a family-owned Sealy of Ohio licensee, um, wanting to grow his company, expand his company, and his his avenue for growth was to sell outside his existing um, agreed-upon geographic area and uh, attempting to purchase other Sealy licensees to grow the business. And, uh, yeah. So he just shipped in the – wait, though. He just shipped in the other geographies. Didn't that piss off the other licensees? <laughs> well, you should ask the captains that question because uh, – <laughs> the Sealy of Ohio rep in Chicago was a character by the name of Jerry Rose. And he sold anyone who couldn't get product because of, uh, from the existing, uh, in the case of Chicago, the DeKalb Sealy licensee. And it really, um, you know, when you go back to that time, there was select distribution. It was part of the way the mattress industry operated. And Ernie just would sell anybody and everybody on a uh, at a better price. I mean, if you were a retailer in Chicago at the time, uh, Polk Brothers, uh, Stevens Bedding, uh, it would not be unheard of to have two or three different posturepedic price lists in your hand on any given day. And you buy a truckload here one week and a truckload there next week. It was crazy, just crazy. Um, and it was how the Sealy brand was built, quite frankly. It was built through retail co-op advertising, just screaming who had the best price. Um, you know, the the big mover was, and the old Sealy guys will clean me up, Larry McKay and, and uh, Gary Fazio and people who lived it, but there was 
the hotel posturepedics one that comes to mind it was i mean 99 twin posturepedic 299 queen um but at times discounted way below that um you could even take it down to texas houston was an incredible battleground during the sealy wars and um Jack Smith, who was running American Bed down there, it was American Bed, American Bedding. We'll ask Harry to get clarification on that. But uh, ran advertised Sealy Posturepedics as low as $29 in twin. Um, and sold a lot of them. I mean, just imagine. And that business just exploded. And to speak to Mark Kinsley's teaser, uh, um, Jack Smith's brother-in-law was Harry Roberts, and Jack Smith was growing so fast he needed help, resources, and he brought Paul Stephen Harry down from South Dakota and put put him to work at American Betting. Uh, American Betting eventually, I mean, can't make a lot of money selling $29 beds, kind of ran out of steam and went upside down, and Paul Stephen Harry were sitting there going, we can go back to South Dakota or we can open a store in Houston and that's the start of mattress firm. Hmm. Wow. All right. So let me, let me bring us back to this term Sealy Wars. Yes. Okay. So that sounds like Molotov cocktails are being tossed into buildings and things are set on fire. I mean, it, it makes me think, okay, what, what was the war that was going on and how, how was the battle or how were the battles being fought? What, what was the drama? It, the, 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 okay. It was multiple. It was stages. Initially, it was purely price. Who could sell Posturepedic for less as a wholesaler into retail? Um, and it created, I mean, when you think about it, in a given marketplace, there was such competition between who had the lowest Posturepedic price that it just dominated um, the ROP advertising for you digital people, ROP run on press, newspaper advertising, where the majority of the business was being done. Um, so that, that really created the Sealy brand. And, and from the strength of all that volume, growing that footprint, um, Ernie would then go out, having weakened some of the players in the network, would go out and try to buy them, um, acquire uh, licensees. And he would reach an agreement, and then uh, Sealy Inc. would come in and exercise right of first refusal and block that purchase. So Ernie sued him, uh, claimed antitrust, um, didn't think he was going to win. In fact, he was so confident he wasn't going to win, he went out and bought Stearns and Foster uh, to be his national brand. And, and, Funny, we didn't discuss this earlier, but his first national advertising was kind of like Victor Kayam with the Remington Razor. I love the product so much, I bought the company. Ernie had national advertising standing in a flock of live sheep numbered. The sheep had numbers on them. That kind of was used later in life in this industry. Uh, drinking a cup of coffee and basically saying, Stearns and Foster makes the finest bed. I love it so much. I bought the company. And that was going to be his um, national footprint. And at this, at, prior to that, he had bought Lifetime Foam from Sears. So he had a network of manufacturing that would allow him to be national. 
because Stearns was very limited in manufacturing New Brunswick and, and Lachlan. Um, so there he goes. He's going to build Stearns and Foster into this national brand. That's how he's going to get big and, and, you know, meet his aspirations of being the king of the betting industry. And then lo and behold, argued in Chicago, Ernie had a young upstart lawyer named Dan Webb. Um, Sealy Inc. had an established uh, lawyer named Max Wildman, kind of the king of the heap of lawyers in Chicago, got into it. And Dan so, Bob, what you're, what you're saying there, though, I just want to stop us there. It's really David and Goliath, isn't it? It is. Right? Because it's Ernie, the small licensee, going against Sealy Inc., and then it's Dan Webb, a young new attorney against a veteran, like corporate guy. So it's like it lines up perfectly, doesn't it? It really does. It, it's absolutely. And lo and behold, Ernie won the case, got trouble damages, and basically used the judgment to roll up Sealy, uh, with the exception of Patterson, New Jersey, which remained independent at, today as a licensee. And uh, just amazing. Ernie didn't see it coming, um, but he was grateful that it did. And it was really kind of interesting. So from that, now he owns a $40 million brand, Stearns and, well, $33 million brand, Stearns and & Foster. And he just acquired Sealy. Um, Stearns & Foster became de-emphasized, uh, putting it nicely. And uh, we struggled for quite a while being, the, pardon the expression, redheaded stepchild um, until 1993 when everything changed and we made it a luxury brand. So that's when you hired me for the record. I'm glad you pinpointed that day. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. You know, <laughs> I, I love Steve Stagner and Craig McAndrews to death. They're my boys, but they talked me into hiring you. And if there is a single <laughs> blemish on their record with me, well. I see. So now I'm not one of your boys? No, is that what I just one, heard you say? You're one of my boys. Okay. You know, it's, hey, do you it's, guys it's, need me to, to, to talk you through this? A little, little counseling here? I, I don't know. My, you know, it, it, it's like family. There's always that one kid. You know what I mean? Hey, I'm happy to be that kid. That's okay. I, I, I won't argue at all. And Bob could share some stories that would probably uh, cement the opinion there into uh, a fair assessment, but we aren't going to talk about that. If, if, all right, Bob. So if, if, if I thought it would humble you, I'd make the effort, but that ain't going to happen. <laughs> oh, no, but it will. Um, all right, Bob. So off of me, back onto the Sealy Wars. So tell us a little bit about what kind of guy Ernie was to be, because he was really a character. I remember a, a quick story about Brenham, Texas, and he kept a Cadillac there. He did. And Glenn, one of the the, the department uh, supervisors, kept Ernie's Cadillac. And every time Ernie would come into town, Glenn would go out there and it was under a tarp and he would polish it all up and clean it all up and have it for Ernie, ready for Ernie when he came into town to drive it around. And mm -hmm. then... When Ernie ended up transitioning out of the business, he gave that car to Glenn, didn't he? He did. Yeah. 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 And, you know, one, one of Ernie's best friends was Sammy Finger. And oh, yeah. that he spent a lot of time in Texas going back and forth between the plant and visiting with Sammy Finger. But Ernie, Ernie was bigger than life. Um, 
he was so focused, so driven, so goal oriented. He was unflappable. But at the same time, there was just kind of a mischief, mischievous soft side to him. I'll never forget. Um, he came into Chicago and this is before the Sealy roll up and he was still uh, doing his best to grow the Stearns and Foster brand. And um, I got us an introduction at um, Marshall Fields with John Solomon, the GMM. And Marshall Fields had just put uh, Serta on the floor through Alva Moog in St. Louis. And Alva got corporate money and his own money. And they, they did a $100,000 deal, which was huge money back then. Um, and so I'm pretty close to John Solomon. And we had a conversation before Ernie coming to town. And John said, you know, there's no way. We just put Serta on the floor. Uh, it was a hundred grand. I mean, it's just not going to happen. So Ernie, Ernie comes into town. I meet him in the lobby, have the conversation. I share what John said. And Ernie said, well, let's just have the meeting and see what happens. And we sit down and Ernie goes, I understand precedent has been set. I'm here to give you $150,000. Let's go to lunch. And Tim was like, what? Oh, okay. And we went to lunch and that the deal was done. The whole thing transpired in less than a minute. Just incredible. Just and and that story could be retold across the country a hundred times. That's he he was just amazing that way. Just incredible. And then um, you know, it, it it's so unfortunate. After he did the big leverage buyout of Sealy Inc., um he came so close to buying Simmons. Uh, price was agreed upon. He'd visit, he did his due diligence, visited the, it was all going to happen. And then his, his health, unfortunately, got bad and he was never able to buy Simmons. But uh, yeah, he was something else. So, Bob, really, after hearing this story, the, you know, a couple, and there's probably so many touch points, but, you know, right out of it, you know, Stearns and Foster wouldn't be what it was if Ernie hadn't purchased it and, seeing the potential uh, mattress firm was kind of born out of some of that. And uh, really, you know, Ernie's, you know, ethic and discipline and passion for the category really helped it grow a lot and uh, turn it kind of into what it is today, or it was the early beginnings for sure. Yeah, no question about it. And, um, you know, it, in the, um, early Stearns and Foster days, he was, he was so sensitive to the integrity of the Stearns and Foster brand. You know, it's, it's, it's a big vision to have, you know, back then when things were so regional, what was going through his mind and where did that vision come from? How did he see that as an opportunity when so many people were like, Hey, these are big bulky objects. They're, you know, regionally manufactured, tough to move around. What led to that? You know, being a vision that was stuck in his in his brain. You know, I I I wasn't that close to him, but I, I in many conversations, and I, I heard him pontificate about this quite a bit. But he talked about how growth needs to be contiguous through advertising markets. Um, and I I know a lot of retailers have practiced the same thing. 
but you don't hopscotch around. You you grow organically and you start to bridge different advertising markets, uh, media markets. And he absolutely believed that once he had a national footprint and could advertise nationally, then he could control the brand. And that was the ultimate goal. Felt like he didn't have control of the brand. Yep. Yeah. And that, and that's, that's the warring aspect of it. I mean, competing product under the same label, uh, race to the bottom in terms of price point, trying to sell into somebody else's marketplace at a lower price to drive them effectively drive them out of business. Yep. Yep. Hmm. Never. What, what was the result of, of the Sealy Wars? I mean, after, let's say after the dust kind of settled, did everything really kind of work in favor of this new entity and it was just like a rocket ship or was there more like shakeout and competition and more friction? You know, all of the above, Mark, um, all of the above. It was, uh, when you looked at Sealy Inc, um, under, it took a little time, but eventually under the uh, guidance of Gary Fazio, it became um, structured. It was no longer the Wild West. It was fact-based selling. It was making intelligent decisions. You know, and I talk about Ernie having such an incredible impact, no one close to him in the industry. The the other one, when you want to look at legacies in the industry, is, is Gary Fazio. Because when you look at my generation and the next generation down, Mark's generation, he taught us the industry from a math perspective, uh, the art of the deal, how to win. Um, that was all Fazio. And that and that's became the persona of Sealy Inc., whether it was Stearns and Foster or Sealy branded products. Um, the other side of that was as Ernie rolled up the Sealy licensees, there were great mattress people. And I'm, you know, the Kaplan Yulman group is a perfect example that no longer had Sealy went out and found a new venture in the bedding industry and, and, you know, just started to put CERTA together and it was a rocket ship. They had incredible success. Um, so it's kind of yin and yang and different things happening. And you know, what's consistent in both of those stories, Bob, is the acknowledgement that a brand would have value in the market. And they were committed to that. Ernie yeah. especially was committed to that. And so were Kaplan Yulman's like they made that commitment. They invested in the brand and uh, knew that that was going to be important for their, you know, long-term health. And so I think, you know, that was always at the core of the, the focus. So it, it's kind of, you know, so interesting to hear it, you know, all the way back from the beginning and, now look at it, right? You know, we, we talk about brand and preference and awareness and, you know, that's, uh, that's the, that's the center of it all, right? Yeah, no question about it. And, and, it, and it goes back to the, what we discussed in the earlier episode is the execution at retail and knowing how to sell the product. I mean, when you look at the Serta brand, um, it was a continuous wiring unit, um, the original was super elastic done by Springwall in the 60s. It had evolved and it was a really good unit. Um, but boy, you you go anywhere at retail and that RSA knew how to sell that unit against pocketed coil, against offset, against LFK. 
they loved that continuous wire unit. They knew how to sell it. Um, you look at, and I'll pick on it. Look at that brand today. It's a Me Too unit. It lacks its own identity. Um, and really the advantage it had at the time. The same advantage that Beautyrest had with the pocket of coil for so many years. Uh, and you know what, Mark, what Bob's talking about, it's kind of interesting for the younger people in the industry. Like Sealy was the open coil, the LFK, double offset, right? That was the construct. Uh, Serta was known for the uh, continuous coil, right? And then Simmons was always known for the pocket of coil, the fabric encased unit. And literally, if you talk to people, it was that simple as you defined the brands. It was literally defined by the inner spring core that each of the brands used. Bob, do you think that's a fair assessment of that back then? I do. I do. And, and, and prior yeah. to that, it was the combination of that core and the foundation. I mean, Sealy was steel slab. Right. You know, Serta was triple beam. Same thing. Same thing. Can't hear you, Mark. To bridge that divide a little bit, um, what do you think defines some of the major brands today? Has it moved away from componentry, or is there still a component piece of that puzzle that defines brands? That's a million dollar question, a billion dollar question Woo! for so many right now, Mark. And the answer is yes. Um, you know, I, I think today, we as manufacturers try to put story before feel. I'll, I'll never forget one of the lessons my dad taught me, and, um, and no one executed it better than Bob Wagner, who was the head of R&D at Sealy back in the 80s and early 90s, is that there are three keys to the kingdom. If, if you want to execute on product and win, you have to differentiate yourself aesthetically, have a unique comfort level, and a demonstrable reason to buy. So you look at what's winning at retail today, and they nail that. Tempur-Pedic. I mean, unique comfort level. Nobody's been able to replicate it because nobody's had the cojones to invest in the product enough to compete with 5.7-pound foam. Um, they're trying to do it with 3.5-pound foam, and it'll never work. So Temper has that unique comfort level. It's definitely has a unique aesthetic. I mean, it kind of led the whole smooth top resurgence with it, with their design and the handprint and the foam demonstrable reason to buy. I mean, you know, not that hard. The old beauty rest with 47 and a half inches of wire in the coil had that dead bed feel. Nobody could replicate it. It had the pocketed coil and the, and the RSA demonstration used to be the bodyboard where you could show it with, you know, it's the hourglass shaped board. It conforms this way. It supports this way all day long. Well, and, and here we are, you guys. What's so interesting to kind of wrap this this episode up for us is, you know, you think about the Sealy Wars and, 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 you know, I've been in the industry 30 years and wasn't back to Ernie's days, but not too far after that. But Bob, just seeing the industry evolve, it's it's so funny because it was defined by the core Innispring unit, right, at one point. And now the complexity of this industry with direct-to-consumer and foamers selling direct-to-consumers and to retailers and retailers, uh, you know, going direct online and, you know, foamers and Innispring people selling directly. I mean, like there used to be a very 
specific lane you had to stay in as a manufacturer or a retailer or a component supplier. Today, it is all bets off, everything goes, and it is so much more complex. Branding is more complex. Marketing is more complex. Uh, private equity is is thrown uh, a monkey wrench into a lot of it. So this it's just so much different than it used to be. So it's fun to reminisce and think about simpler times. So um, anyway, any parting thoughts, any questions, any things we didn't ask that you think are important to reference? Well, if, if you, you just got me thinking about one thing I'd love to comment on, and that is direct-to-consumer mattress in a box. It's kind of amazing to me because I've looked closely at many of these companies and worked with many of these companies closely. And I would say plus or minus that much, every mattress in a box is the exact same thing. It's a block of poly with a couple inches of memory foam glued to the top of it, rolled up and stuck in a box by marketers. I mean, so it's 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 a marketing arm of the industry selling the same chunk of foam in a box. And just imagine if somebody actually innovated in that category. Lots of opportunity. Can't hear you there, Mr. Kinsley. Sorry, my microphone is buzzing on. There's okay, it's trash day. Let's just put it that way. There's a lot of lot of noise. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was thinking to myself, what have you seen? What if anything have you seen innovation in the roll pack mattress space? Is is anything bubbled up that's caught your eye, or is it really just a bunch of me twos? Um. Well, no, it's a bunch of me too's right now. I mean, there's some marginal stuff, but you see it across all product lines. I, I have a cooling story. I have a, a gel. Uh, now there's, there are better ways to skin the cat, but stay tuned. We'll see. Uh, so right. the answer, Kinsley, because I know him really well, is yes, and screw you, I'm not telling you anything on this show. <laughs> no. I have the answer, and if you think I'm going to tell you, you're wrong. You're crazy. <laughs> Bob, I see you. <laughs> I got it. If, if you're watching on camera, this is Bob Hellier's, uh, his evil workshop behind you. But not evil, it's his good workshop, but it's his secret dungeon, kind of like his Batman cave. It is my cave. Absolutely. My wife, Tora, <laughs> has allotted me 20 square feet of the house, and this is this is my world. <laughs> I um, love that's it. more than most people get, so. Yeah, yeah. No, I, not complaining. Not complaining. Well, Bob, it's uh, great to have you on. It's great to walk down memory lane there, and, you know, if you're – if you're new to the industry, even if you've been in it for a while, um, share this episode with people. I think it's really cool that we get to hear about the origin of the industry because for you to appreciate and value where we are, you need to know where we came from. And uh, we got a little bit of a lesson on that today, and it was uh, fun to talk through it, Bob. So thanks yeah. so much for being on the show. And um, if you're listening to this, uh, like I said, share it and Go to Spotify and iTunes and give us a uh, review. We'd appreciate that. And uh, stay tuned. So much more. Kinsley, anything else you want to add? You know, I just one thing that hit me. I remember we had Harry Roberts come on the show. It's been a while back. And I asked him, I go, do you remember a time when your business was really firing on all cylinders back when he was he, he and the crew were building mattress firm before they sold it? 
And Harry said, one, there was a, there was a year where we really leaned into marketing the Sealy brand. That's all we focused on was Sealy. And he said, our business absolutely exploded to the point where people would come into our stores and write checks to Sealy. They thought we <laughs> were Sealy. So it's fun to see the Sealy wars, how it played out, how it shaped the industry, how it led to Mattress Firm, and then how the Mattress Firm crew really capitalized on that later in their business. Can I share one quick story on Harry Roberts? Yeah. My dear friend. Um, so Yeah, definitely. Like, take some shots at him. We love that. He, he I, loves I, hearing I'm, those I'm, No, I'm just going to try to embarrass him if I can. Um, I worked most closely with Harry than anyone else in developing the Stearns Luxury Program. I mean, we we made it for certain it was going to succeed at Mattress Firm before we even looked anywhere else with it. And Harry was just a huge contributor, as was Paul and Steve the whole bit. Um, so we launch it um, in 93. And the first quarter of 1994, I get a call in my office, and it's Harry. And he's, hell yeah. I just want you to know we filled, filled the conference room up of cash and we're rolling around naked in it. That's how much money we're making with Stearns and Foster. <laughs> and I, I truly believe he, he, he was. I, I would not surprise me like one bit. Scrooge McDuck, you know, that cartoon where he dives into his pool full of gold. <laughs> well, at least well, he didn't have honey on his body. Okay. Yeah, right. Well, now, now we have, we're leaving you at the end of this podcast episode with the visualization of Harry uh, Roberts rolling around naked in money. So you're welcome. Perfect. That's all I was looking for. Time well spent. Bob, thanks. Thanks again for being on the show. It's been great having you here. If you didn't listen to part one, go back and listen to part one with Bob as well. And uh, hey, as this industry evolves and as these secret projects and products and new ideas start coming out of your brain. We got to have you back to actually talk about them openly next time. Look forward to it. You guys are awesome. You can bounce on it. Oh, oh, oh. Jim.